0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're going primal. The guest is Max Brooks, author of zeitgeist-exploding mega-hit World War Z, and his new book, Devolution. It was published last year to great reviews, including, I have to admit, my own, in the UK Guardian. Links in the show notes. (laughs) Devolution is a timely take on survival, technology, humanity in crisis, and big, hairy, hungry Sasquatch. I know, I know, cryptozoology, Bigfoot, yawn. I'm sure some of you out there are just thinking, move on Neil, we we don't all believe there are hairy people living in the woods. To that, I would say, one, clearly you don't live near me, and two, Max's take is very different as you'll hear. As well as talking monsters, in fact even more than talking monsters, Max and I discuss the human condition and our unpreparedness for things going wrong. He doesn't just write about crisis, he's on a number of think tanks and he has a lot of info, quite disconcerting info, at his immediate disposal. As such, I came out of this conversation a little less confident that humanity will survive into the next century. But hey, Whilst we wait for the end, we also talk about hokey Bigfoot documentaries, primate research, the beauty and isolation of America's wild places. We talk about the pros and cons of doing a vomit draft as opposed to editing as you go. And after all that, I get to call Boris Johnson a malevolent hay bale. Many reasons to be cheerful. Oh, and I also ask Max what he really thinks of the World War Z movie. Yikes. So, come with me again back to the woods. Put down your iPad and watch the shadows. They might be hungry. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Max, and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm delighted to have you here. Good to be here. How are you and where in the world do we find you today? I am in delightful Venice Beach, California. Amazing. Is it is the sun shining? No, we have what's called
1: May gray. Uh the California coast for large parts of the year are is very well socked in. It's uh it's almost English weather where we get um we just get a haze. I would say from May to June
0: and then maybe in the first months of the fall. Okay, then. You've tempered my jealousy a little bit. Um, so, first of all, thank you so much for rearranging this. Um, listeners, i have mortified. I literally stood up mega-selling world-famous author Max Brooks today whilst my wife got vaccinated. Thanks for being understanding, Max, and thank you, Science. Uh, no problem, and I'm glad she's... Is, is it her first jab? It's her first yes and it's it's mine tomorrow, so we will be relatively protected from tomorrow have you have you was are you okay?
1: yeah, my whole family we're all vaccinated, even my son who's sixteen, and it looks like as of today twelve to fifteen year olds will be able to get vaccinated so
0: I read about this yeah it's it's good news we we're doing it much more of an age graded way in over in the uk which it makes sense, I suppose, but I'm just glad my wife is done yeah. And in a cynical segue from my wife's vaccination to your novel, science plays a massive part in both. Um, We're here today to talk about devolution, your book that puts a whole different face on the things that may be lurking in the woods. So this one came out last year, but it's published in paperback on June 10th. For those yet to read it, what can you tell us about devolution? Well, I can tell you that it begins with...
1: The, the town of Greenloop, which is a, a, a high-tech, high-end eco-community for uh, telecommuters, and it is nestled in the foot of the Cascade Mountains in Washington State in the good old USA Pacific Northwest. And this, this technology of telecommuting and of drone delivery and of green tech allows these people to live with the comforts of uh, the West End of London or the Upper East Side of Manhattan, but nestled in the pristine wilderness. So these people can wake up and go for a walk in the woods, and then they go to work on a screen, and then they tap their phone, and a drone delivers their lunch from Seattle. And everything's wonderful until it's not, when Mount Rainier, a volcano, erupts and cuts them off. And they're not just cut off, they're forgotten, because the volcano blows out in the direction of Seattle. Winter's on the way. And these highly educated, highly paid uh, upper crust of society don't know how to change a light bulb. And they need to learn how to feed themselves. And if that's not the worst of it, the, the eruption has driven a pack of very large, very hungry Sasquatch Bigfoot creatures away from their traditional foraging grounds. And they need to stock up on calories too. And they come across Green Loop, which is essentially a pen of sheep. And that's our story.
0: So in recent weeks, we've had quite a few cryptozoological themed or tinged novels. But this is the, the big daddy of them all in recent years. With these questions, I like to go from the broad to the specific. So, so let's start with the broadest question possible. Why Bigfoot? Okay. And I will give you the broadest, most simple
1: answer ever. It used to scare the crap out of me. And and I guess kind of still does. I still go up in the Pacific Northwest all the time. And if I'm alone in the woods and it's it's nighttime, oh, good Lord. But when I was a child in the late 70s, early 1980s, it was sort of the height of the Bigfoot craze. And we had all these faux documentaries. Uh, And I didn't know they were faux. I thought they were real. Uh, And Back in the day, those documentaries about Bigfoot used to have recreations where they would reenact sightings and they would be dramatized. But I'm six years old, so I didn't know this. All I know is I'm watching TV at night in front of the window, watching a girl watching TV at night in front of a window when a giant furry fist smashes through the window and tries to grab her. Well, when you're six years old, that's going to give you a complex.
0: And you've poured that complex into this novel. Yes. So is, for, for reference sake, is that are we talking about the legend of Boggy Creek there? Because that's the one I've seen. No, this one was called Bigfoot, the Mysterious Monsters. It had a host, Peter Graves.
1: He was the guy on Mission Impossible in the, in the 70s. He's very tall. He's very Gentile. And he's got very white hair. And when he talks to you, you have to believe everything he says. Because I did. So when he, sa- he broke this documentary down like a police detective, Exhibit A, The Footprints. Exhibit B, the eyewitnesses. And then he would just go down and do Exhibit Q, the visions of a psychic detective.
0: <laughs> I didn't know he was full of crap. I believed it. Well, well, whether he's full of crap or not, we'll we'll get to that. Um over the last few decades, a lot of big fi- foots or big feet, I'm not sure on the plural. Let's say Sasquatch, in popular culture, they're often shown as as friendly or or at least kind of transcendental, a kind of Rousseauian natural man uncorrupted by society. They've got something to teach us. Right. Yet your Man of the Woods is a malicious, brutal, violent creature. You've kind of taken Harry away from the Hendersons and given him rabies. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, what I've done is I've made Harry hungry.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair enough.
1: It's nothing, it's nothing more than that. And that that's one of the sort of philosophical uh, themes in the novel is human beings need to stop putting their morality and their artificially created notions of good and evil on nature. Nature has no morality. Nature is neither good nor evil. It just exists. And if you don't understand nature's rules and don't obey it and, and try to assume like Rousseau did, you know, I mentioned Rousseau in the book. If you assume that nature is a garden that can be tended and controlled, you're going to be in a lot of trouble.
0: Well, yeah, and these people are in a a great deal of trouble, both from nature in terms of Bigfoot and in terms of their inability to cope with the natural world in the raw. But let's say we let's stay with Sasquatch for now if we move on. Why were you attracted to this quite different terrifying version of Sasquatch and did you base it on anything did you do like a lot of primate research or things like that or was it just imagination oh
1: god never never imagination nothing I mean my hero my model is Tom Clancy
0: okay well not a guess that
1: as someone who grew up with with just crushing dyslexia uh, I always sought education wherever I could find it and I wanted it from my books and what I loved about Clancy was He took Ian Fleming's sort of middle-aged white male psychosexual fantasy of James Bond and threw it away. And he replaced it with hard research because Tom Clancy was a a wannabe and a nerd. And he spent all his time in the library. So you walk away from uh, Hunt for Red October or my favorite of his books, Red Storm Rising, and you are educated as well as entertained. And that's the kind of writer I always wanted to be. So My God, I did years and years and years of research on this, on Sasquatch. Uh, And a lot of it was real primatology. How do real apes react? And what I found was very, very frightening. They're neither good nor evil. But boy, if you get them desperate enough, uh, they can be quite violent. And chimpanzees, they hunt monkeys. And I've watched more than enough footage of chimpanzees ripping apart colobus monkeys while they're still alive. And while the monkeys are screaming and trying to crawl away, the chimp is just calmly holding him down with one hand, and ripping its guts out with another, and then licking the blood off
0: the leaves when they're done. Well, I think that will probably give my listeners a good indication at the level of violence in this novel. It's a surprisingly bloody feast. I'm fascinated by your research, because I can imagine nothing more fun than spending however long, researching Sasquatch and having a legitimacy to doing it because you're actually going to write a novel out of it. I would happily spend my life researching Sasquatch, but my wife may have an issue with that. It's weird to say this to you, but the Guardian blurb for devolution that's included in the paperback was actually written by me.
1: Oh, hey!
0: Um, I, I reviewed this book for the Guardian. I said that for fans of Bigfoot or cryptozoology, this is a referential treat. Now, that referentiality is my favourite aspect of the, the book. It, it, it's packed with anecdote and trivia and pop culture references to the Sasquatch phenomenon. While she was researching, is there anything that, like, jumped out to you um, as, as a must-read? Or do you have any kind of, like, memorable things that you came across that, you, that kind of blew your mind? Well, t- a ton of it. Uh, part of it was...
1: Really, as as an urbanite, as someone who's lived in a city my whole life, it definitely woke me up to how truly vast North America is. And I can see why Europeans might have an initial difficulty understanding this, certainly Western Europeans. But <clears throat> North America is is vast, and most North Americans live in cities, and that has been a growing trend for some time. The idea that once you take away air travel, or even road travel, and have to walk on foot, most of my continent is impassable. When we talk about research, in addition to reading books, in addition to speaking to real scientists, real technologists, uh, real experts in the field, I had to do some of this stuff myself. So I had to make my own weapons. Uh, I had to grow my own crops, just like my characters did. I And then I had to go on foot to the place that I had plopped Green Loop in because I use satellite imagery to figure out where it might be. But I also had to answer that same basic question. Could my characters just walk out? And I went there alone, which was probably not the brightest. And I realized, not only can you not walk out, you can't even walk in. That is just brutal, punishing, potentially lethal terrain. And I'm a pretty fit guy with a pretty good background in hiking and camping. And even I realized I I was taking some very unnecessary risks.
0: That's the question I was going to ask, and you've half answered it, because I've been to Vancouver and I've seen the very edges of the, of, the remnants of the great Pacific Northwest forest. And I've read about the vastness and the wildness, but I'm not sure that I've got a really a true sense of it. And I was wondering whether it's feasible that if a disaster of this kind was to occur in that area, could a community like Greenloop be so emphatically cut off from society? Is that feasible?
1: Yes. Yes. And this is and this is why. Everything I do, I have to prove. And so in order to because in, in order to do my research for the book, only only a part of it was about Sasquatch. I also had to research the Mount Rainier eruption, my catalyst event. So I had to speak to the real experts at the USGS uh choosing the location of green loop was based in large part on the united states geological survey map of where rainier will erupt when it does erupt because it will it may be a thousand years from now but when it does there's a specific type of eruption and that eruption will be in a certain direction and that was my compass needle so i had to be very clear about what's going to happen and sure enough, if Green Loop isn't the location I put it in, they would be completely cut off. There's nowhere to go. There's very few roads. And unfortunately, most of the roads that we've built in the Pacific Northwest are in the exact valleys where the lahars, the boiling tsunamis of
0: molten mud would flow. Right, because it, it is one of the more terrifying aspects of the novel, this sense of complete isolation. Um, within a, a hostile environment. Yeah, it, it's put me off ever going that deep in the forest in that part of the world. I just don't think I'm up for it. I don't think I could cope in any kind of situation.
1: Well, you know, I'm very lucky in that I've I've been fortunate enough over the course of my life, before I even considered writing this book, to meet people who are experts in the field of survival and search and rescue. The first time I ever did this was when I was a kid in the 90s working as an unpaid Uh, Field researcher, field hand for the BBC, and I worked on a mountain rescue documentary in the in the far north of Scotland. So I got a chance to meet search and rescue teams, and they said that they they're constantly busy because people don't respect nature, and they say people go out for a jolly jaunt up Ben Nevis in what looks like good weather, and then the weather turns uh, within seconds, turns on a dime, and suddenly they're trapped in blinding rain or fog and ice cold, and they don't have any supplies, and they don't have a map, and they don't know where they're going, and then they have to be rescued. So that was my first, as a kid, uh, introduction to the idea that nature is not a garden, even in a place that you think it would be like the United Kingdom.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, on a side note, it happened to me recently. Me and my friends went for a big, long, epic ultra run running up and down three mountains in Yorkshire um, and on the third one my friend fell and broke a rib and we were in complete oh. whiteout fog in December in running gear oh. which is fine when you're moving fast but when you're suddenly moving right? slow because you're carrying a friend all of a sudden you're in quite a dangerous situation and it's the first time in my life because I'm not really a brave guy it's the first time in my life that I have kind of confronted the fact that I am not actually safe here no this is going wrong and it's going wrong very quickly but thankfully we were close enough that we got down and it was all okay but it it's, it was a real eye-opener and then when you when you take that which I was essentially 45 minutes from a town and you put it in the Pacific Northwest or the Rockies or something like that it's 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 quite boggling to the British mind I think apart from the very north of Scotland we don't have that level of isolation and wilderness uh, anymore. So, yeah, I found in many ways that as frightening as the creatures. Yeah. But before we move on from the creatures, we mentioned Rousseau, Jean Jacques Rousseau, the 18th century philosopher. And if anything, is the USP of this podcast, it's that I'm talking to Max Brooks about an 18th century philosopher. You don't get that <laughs> on many shows. Rousseau, his theories are often in the background of a lot of monster literature, notably, most notably, Frankenstein, because his argument was that society is a cynical, degrading system, and that wildness and wilderness is actually original purity. Yes, yes. And like Frankenstein, monsters only become monstrous by confronting so-called civilization. It's kind of like monstrosity is in the eye of the beholder. right. That's my take from it, anyway. But that ties that that even though your monsters are very monstrous, that thread continues in Devolution because there is still this confrontation between a pure bestial wilderness, whether it be, you know, the the the, the landscape or the creatures, and this essentially useless eco community, Green Loop, and and it does seem like you are as consumed by satirizing that as you are with terrorizing it is that a fair thing to say what are what is the target of your satire in this novel well you know i target uh, in this in this book uh, i think in a lot of my
1: my writing i target bubbles i target people who are living in a manufactured reality and believe that their reality is the true reality They don't understand they live in a bigger world with bigger problems. Uh, uh, Intellectual isolation is big because that's the world I I grew up in. You grow up on the west side of Los Angeles and you meet people who are these sort of intellectual fops who really do believe what they see in front of them is uh, indicative of the rest of the world. And they're completely out of touch. I mean, you see it in American politics where the American left, of which I am a part of, uh, we lost the country because we lost touch with what most Americans really care about. And we just, we couldn't understand. We, we still can't understand. And our, and our only response is to degrade those people, as Fran Leibowitz calls them, herds of hillbillies. And yet in that same documentary about Fran Leibowitz, she tells what she thinks is a witty anecdote about not being able to fill her car with gas. She doesn't know how to do it. Well, you know who does know how to, to fill up their own cars? These herds of hillbillies. I, I satirize them, but every every character in my book is based on real people I know. I didn't just invent these people. Uh, the people of Greenloop; these are the people that I grew
0: up with. I spoke to Jeff Vandermeer recently, um, who's obviously got a, got a serious investment in the you know the ecological side of fiction, and he lamented the rise of the so-called Tech bro, who we defined as people who are so aggressively interested in fixing a problem that they lose sight of the actual issues at stake. And Tony Durant, the founder of Greenloop, feels like the ultimate tech bro. Oh yeah, he's so consumed by the cleverness of, of Greenloop and its its supposed self sufficiency. As Jeff Goldblum immortalized, you were so concerned with whether you could, you didn't think to, stop to ask whether you should. Yes. I did have to wonder all the way through whether Tony Durant is based on anyone in particular, a certain car manufacturer with a space fixation, perhaps.
1: Uh, No, Tony, Tony Durant is all of them. Tony Durant is he there's a piece of Elon Musk in him. There's a piece certainly of Steve Jobs. I think more Steve Jobs than Elon Musk, because I I think if if I, I think Elon Musk does have a basic understanding of what he's doing whether there's morality behind it or not. But Steve Jobs had no idea. Steve Jobs was P.T. Barnum with computers. Uh, he He was a total fraud, which, by the way, he also was responsible in large part for helping American society withdraw from current events and into a safe little bubble of comfort. And the best example of it was the birth of the iPhone. At a time when America was fighting two horrible wars in the Middle East, and American kids were dying, and a lot of Iraqi kids were dying. And instead of him using his his power, his influence to, let's say, create an alternative to petroleum, he invented a phone you can put in your pocket where you can watch the TV show the office. And that's what he crowed about. You can watch TV on your phone. That's Tony Durant. And I know these guys because I, I'm part of two think tanks, the Modern War Institute at West Point. It's a military think tank and the Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security, which is a civilian think tank in Washington, D.C., which means I go to a lot of tech conferences. And so many of them have no concept of what's going on outside their little Rubik's Cube. And they remind me a lot of Oppenheimer and all his people at Los Alamos when they were so excited. You know, they'll tell you after the fact that they were trying to save us from the Nazi nuclear program. But that's not true. A lot of them were just obsessed with cracking the puzzle of cracking the atom, and then once they did it, Oppenheimer said, "Oh God, what have we done?" Uh, I asked someone in the driverless car world, "What are you going to do if your car is hacked and terrorists use it to drive into farmers' markets?" And they'd never even considered that possibility. Yeah,
0: I I hadn't actually really thought about the fact that this book was—it's not really an analog for the political divide in America, but it certainly frames it that idea as you say of the the liberal elite of which I could easily be pigeonholed as one myself you know I'm as lefty as they come, but even I look at my peers sometimes in absolute frustration, I hadn't really thought about how this was satirizing that, and it's very true but to, to come back to your point about science, I couldn't agree more that there is this great sort of grand narrative that science is free of the notion of right and wrong it is just pure pursuit and it is you know it's freed from the shackles of ethics and i always think like that's fine but what do we do when the people using that tool are sociopaths <laughs> who only care about goals yes. and only care about being right or winning what what do we do then and i think this book does a great a great job of putting those people in a petri dish and then torturing them. (laughs) Well, you know, the the scene in the book where one of my characters
1: describes a a tech head who has hacked his arm to play the piano and and then says, imagine if I could use this technology to create a whole cyber suit. Imagine how great that would be for, you know, people who are disabled or the elderly. And then our character says, well, what would you do if the suit was hacked? And the hacker had them pick up their perfectly legal assault rifle, because this is America, and walk down to the local preschool. Well, that incident really happened. There really was a tech head who d- gave this demonstration and people were ooing and awing and then someone asked that exact question and the guy had no answer. And the person asking that question was me.
0: <laughs> right, okay. So this is, this is a kind of Romana Clef then really. You are. Uh, it's not that far from reality. It's just the monsters that are, that are fictitious. Yeah, well, that, that's everything I do
1: uh, has a fictional threat but factual solutions in a very fact-based
0: world. There's a brilliant line. I, I love when I read something that articulates something I've always thought but not quite had the words for. And just to give a bit of context, you, you've got these people in Greenloop, this motley crew of illiquid people. You know, they, they're living in what they are proud of themselves um, for having this kind of life off the grid, away from capitalism. They're They're proud of it. But you you write that those poor bastards didn't want a rural life. They expected an urban life in a rural setting. It's great to live free of the sheep until the wolves howl. And I've long thought that that it's this narrative of people freeing themselves from the rat race you know getting away and owning a vineyard or living off off, off grid and it's like you only get there by winning a capitalist life first of all and then you know if yes. the shit hits the fan what do you do
1: yes that's well that's exactly right and and particularly from a north american or really american point of view is we have the myth of the of the rabid individualist we have this this fallacy that somehow society, civilization, it, it's an impediment. It holds you back. If only if only you could break free and live free, then you could realize your full potential, which I believe your people have a saying, which is bollocks. Yes, because at no point was that ever true. Even even in America's early history, when we had the, the mountain men, Jeremiah Johnson, uh, Jeremiah Johnson, his rifle was made in a city. His knife came from Sheffield, England. His coffee came from South America. His tea came from China. His blanket probably came from the Hudson Bay Company, which meant it was Scottish wool. So even the mountain man alone in the wilderness was the epitome of globalization. <laughs>
0: There's a whole dissertation boiled down there into one paragraph, but that that is excellent. It's interesting, though, that you mentioned that specifically American attitude, because one of the things I noticed is that aside from our protagonist, Kate Holland, there are two other characters in this community, Mostar and Palomino, the oldest and the youngest character. And they're the only ones who seem in any way equipped to deal with the unfolding disaster. And it struck me that both of them are not American. And I wonder whether that was an intentional thing, that you were saying something about an American response to crisis.
1: Yes, I'm always critical of that because I think that, you know, every culture has certain things that they're very good at and things they're very bad at. And I will say, America is good at a lot of things. Trust me, I am so fiercely patriotic, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. God bless America. But one of our cultural flaws is our sense of isolationism. And part of that is just simple geography. We don't have to confront the world. And so every so often, we forget there is a world. And we think that we know everything. And that... Our, our grandparents, the World War II generation, had to be brutally reminded of that. And their parents had to be brutally reminded of that in the First World War. But we're now three generations out from that. You know, the, the old people in America now, the majority of seniors uh, are baby boomers who grew up in the 1950s with TV and indoor plumbing and uh, electricity and big cars. And so we forget that there's another whole world out there that doesn't live as comfortably. As us. And I specifically, that's why I specifically wanted Mostar to be from the former Yugoslavia, because the 1990s was sort of the zenith of American isolationism. Cold War was over, uh, computers were suddenly showing pictures of naked people, uh, things were great. (laughs) And you can see why American parents sort of overparented and coddled their generation of children because they really didn't believe there were any more challenges. There was nothing there was there was no great challenge waiting out there for them. And so your children could focus on your feelings and your pronouns. But as we were doing that, a European country, Europe, not Africa, Europe, was tearing itself apart. Neighbors that had lived together for half a century were suddenly shooting each other in the streets. And specifically, I wanted someone from the former Yugoslavia to say to my Insulated, isolated, you know, intellectual parasites that
0: things can fall apart really, really, really fast. And boy, do they. I went into this, to be honest, expecting a kind of fun monster romp because it's quite hard to imagine a serious piece of Bigfoot fiction. I mean, satire aside, and it is a very, very funny book. It's bloody and merciless, much more <laughs> than I expected. You know, really bad things happen to a lot of people, some who we care about, others we're delighted to see get their deserts. But did you set out to write something so vicious, or did did the urge to punish these people grow as you were writing about them? no
1: i was it was always meant to to have uh to have innocent people with their heads up their ass crash into disaster. Uh, because I see it all around me. Uh, that's that's why we had to have also have Palomino, who was is, who is an orphan. Uh, and she's a Rohingya. And so she understood how bad things could get. That's why when they have their first emergency meeting and everyone is sort of comforting themselves, that don't worry, they are coming to save us. Palomino and Mostar exchange a look like, oh shit, we're in for it. And we need that. And we also needed... Uh, we needed the professorial Dr. Reinhardt, who who hides behind his intellectual uh, foppishness or, is it, or his intellectual cowardice, as we should say, and that's why we needed the chapter of his sister, who went to join the Israeli army and said, you know, we are from a tribe who was who were living a very comfortable existence until one day they were putting yellow stars on us and shipping us off into gas chambers. And you forgot that,
0: and I haven't. Yeah, as with World War Z, this is full of interesting characters with, with specific views on the world, and, and, it, and it, it creates quite a nice collage. I'm intrigued, though, because both World War Z and Devolution play with this, this notion of pseudo-documentation and textual collage and false provenance. Why do you choose to tell your stories like that? Well, I I set out
1: to tell what I consider to be the truest format for the specific story. You know what what suits it best. What is the best way to tell this story? With with World War Z, we can say Z. Uh, I was trying to tell a big story. That was the whole reason for for trying to tell it in the first place. Was as a as a lifelong fanatical zombie fan. Uh, I was sick and tired of seeing a global crisis boiled down to a small group of people. It's like trying to tell the story of the Second World War just for saving Private Ryan. I I wanted to answer my own big questions about a zombie plague that no one else was doing. But how do you do that? Uh, well, I had read, or I should say I'd listened to the audio version because of my dyslexia, Studs Terkel's The Good War, An Oral History of the Second World War. Great book. And I thought that is the best format, an oral history of survivors all around the planet. That's how I can finally harness the sheer scope of a global crisis.
0: Yeah, and it's worth pointing out to the the listener that if you like World War Z, you will love Devolution because it has (laughs) not the same extent, but it has some parallels with that assemblage of documents in that you've got excerpts from interviews, you've got police reports you've got you know documents that are both real and false giving anecdotal history on the on on Bigfoot as I said in The Guardian it is a referential treat for people who are into this kind of thing um is it fun to write a book like that though to play with different literary types and forms well you know I think in my in my
1: writing process if I want to use that sort of (laughs) pretentious term my process uh (laughs) The first draft of anything is fun because I've done all this hard work. I've researched, I've outlined, I've, I've written synopses, and then I get to write the first draft. The first draft is great because the goal of the first draft is just to write the end. I just got to get there so then I can have a document to improve upon. So I don't worry about it being good. I don't worry about the details. I just go, and it's wonderful, and it's fun, and I think I'm so talented, and I'm so pleased with myself. And then I'm done with the first draft, and then I have to get back to work as a grown-up. Uh, as my mentor, Alan Alda, used to tell me, anybody can write, but a, a professional writer rewrites. And that's where the fun stops.
0: Tell me about it. I'm currently drafting a novel, and I am rewriting as I go, and I'm driving myself insane. Well, you're not on your first draft, are you? I am on my first draft, but I'm obsessed No,
1: no, No, you, no, you, you've... You've got to end, you've got to go to the end because you'll never finish if you're staring at a blank page. The blank page is the most intimidating thing ever. On every blank page is a giant invisible watermark that says, you suck. And you have to burn through that by just by writing the end. That's the antidote. Then you got something to work with. Then you can fix it and you can polish. But oh God, if you're rewriting as you write, I don't know how, how are you ever going to finish that thing?
0: See, now I've been given competing advice by you and Joe Lansdale. And what, what am I supposed to do?
1: Well, the only way the only way to figure out which one of us is right is figure out which one is right for you. So you figure out your own psychology by doing it. So you do it, see how it works. Then on your next novel, try it differently. And then you figure out you could say, oh, OK, because there is no there's no right way. Depending on who you are, you know, one of my friends is the the very famous comic book writer Mark Wade, and Mark's the kind of guy where he said to me, you know, he said I sit down and I don't even know where it's going, I just sit down and I get to work, and boy does it work for him. The man's a freaking genius. Well, I could never do that. I have to spend years planning it out, uh, and so, but I wouldn't have known that had I not done it over and over and over again. And I think that your only way to figure out your process uh is to proceed.
0: Yes. Well so far I've been doing the Joel Lansdale method, but there are teeth marks in my keyboard, so (laughs) maybe that's not the way for me. Um want to ask you a question, if you don't mind, about World War Z, because let's face it, my listeners will be interested. But you may have been asked this countless times before, so forgive me if it's if it's a bit old hat. What are your thoughts on the film adaptation? Are you a fan or are you not? You know what? I'll say this. I'll say it's a good movie. It's a good movie. It's a fun movie. And it has nothing
1: to do with my book. Uh, And in a strange way, it it made it easier to watch.
0: Yeah. Because,
1: you know, I thought I thought I was going to I thought I was going to tear my hair out. You know, you you hear these stories about Stephen King being fired off The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. You know, Stanley Kubrick basically saying to him, you don't know how to write his own his own script. And the problem with The Shining was it was close enough to his book that he couldn't forget what he was watching. Uh, I could. I didn't invent Jerry Lane. I mean, there literally was almost nothing in the movie that had anything to do with my book. So I could just sort of close my eyes through the title sequence and then pretend I'm watching 28 Days Later on crack. But I will say the one the one regret I have, and, I, and, and I've got to be honest about this. Enough time has gone by that I can be honest about this. My one regret is not thanking Brad Pitt, because no matter how the movie came out, no matter what they did, no matter what choices they made, uh, the movie drove a lot of people to read my book. And I forgot that along the way. And Stephen King reminded me of that, because when the movie was coming out, I was tearing myself up. And my wife suggested I write to our good friend Frank Darabont who created The Walking Dead TV show and then was subsequently fired off his own TV show. And then everyone has since gotten all the credit. Everyone else stands up and takes a bow when really they're just stealing Frank's glory. So I wrote to Frank and I said, you know, they're going to ruin my book. And Frank said, they're not going to ruin your book. What are they going to, they're going to pull your book off the shelves and rewrite it? No, your book is your book. You have your side of the story. And then he passed on my email to Stephen King, who wrote to me and said, Always remember that the reason any of us novelists ever sell the movie rights is just to bring attention to our book so people will read it. And that happened. And I have absolutely no right to complain. And I never said to Brad, you know, thank you. I was always sort of aloof. But, you know, I could have said to him, hey, man, you know, thanks a lot for uh, letting a whole lot of people know that there's a book out there called World War Z, because a lot of people wouldn't have read it if not
0: for you. I wonder how many people came to your book after the film and were just blown away by how different it is, though. That's quite a cool thought.
1: Oh, it is. I mean, and, and that's what Frank Darabont was trying to tell me. He said, look, he said, take it from a, a screenwriter. Take it from a guy who's written scripts and then had those scripts completely rewritten and eviscerated and then produced to where people think that was the script that you wrote because your name is still on it. He said, Max, you still get to be pure. You still get to have your novel with your name. So if anybody was wondering what your vision was, there it is. So you still get to have that. So what are you complaining about?
0: Well, that's that's a philosophical take on it. As a, a fan of your book, though, let me tell you what I think, because <laughs> I have more frustration. Um, no, it's, it's a good movie, and I completely take your point. I just think it's a shame that your book came out at the height of the found footage mockumentary boom. And I can't think of any other novel better suited to an ex- experimental mockumentary treatment. And I just, for years, I've been bemoaning the loss that it wasn't adapted as a kind of, you know, like the, have you ever seen The World at War? Yeah. The, the famous encyclopedic, almost found footage approach to documenting the Second World War. Yeah. It just felt like they could have made that with talking heads and and fake shaky cam footage and news reports and it it would have been a game-changing piece of either tv or cinema and i just think it's such a shame i, I think it could have been but you know to, to segue just away from my
1: stuff into sort of the general genre of where things are going you know we have to remember when the movie came out movies were becoming globalized and this was a much broader trend and so movies couldn't just run in the English-speaking world. They had to run globally. And as a result, all movies, not just World War Z, all movies had to have their dialogue dumbed down and their characters simplified. Uh, because if you had some sort of nuanced idea of what you're suggesting, uh, never would have made any money. Uh, now, as a TV show, you can experiment because now that's where all the brains are right now right? Because look at movies today. Movies in the cinema are either little teeny art films, you know, Francis McDormand living in a van, driving around, or giant J.J. Abrams, Michael Bay roller coaster rides that basically have about six lines of dialogue. And that's it. And there's no room for World War Z in that world right now. Now, if they ever do it as a TV show, there's room to experiment and there's room to do what you are thinking of. So maybe, you know, you never know, uh, books, books have no shelf life. Look at handmaid's tale. You know, that thing is what 30 years old, 40 years old. Yeah. And now it's this amazing TV show that is being watched
0: all over the world. Well, that's it. I'm going to write to Netflix and offer them my thoughts. (laughs) That's, that's, that's the only thing to do. We'll end up soon. Max, we've got a few more questions. Sure. Much of your fiction. And this is, you know, both novels and and your your survival guides. It's been interested primarily in, I suppose, the realization that human life is only precariously sitting at the top of the food chain. Yes. In, in whatever <laughs> that may mean, you know, in terms of sustainable dominance. Um, do you worry about us? Where do these anxieties come from? Oh God. I worry all the time. I
1: worry that we are at a point where we are taking civilization for granted because we are exactly three generations out. You know, uh, a gener- even a generation ago, when all the grandparents were of, of World War II, uh, you could not be picky about your food. Can you imagine in, in Britain where your grandmother lived through rationing? If you didn't want to eat what was on your plate, she'd smack you in the back of the head. She'd say, you don't know what it was like being lucky to wait in line to get your ration card to just have a little bit. And in the United States, you could not have anti-vaxxers where if the majority of old people had grown up before the polio vaccine, oh my God. But now we've moved enough away that we can afford to be ignorant brats. And it's the ignorant radishness that absolutely terrifies me because we're forgetting how we got here and how to maintain what our grandparents have built. And that's the danger of things falling apart. I mean, look at what happened with COVID. Had COVID hit us 20 years earlier, would not have been a problem. Uh, I don't know about that, probably the UK as well, but certainly in the US, we would have been on top of that. We would have knocked that out. But enough time has gone by that we have become soft and dumb and selfish. And now America has lost more Americans to COVID than we lost in all of World
0: War II in one third of the time. That's what keeps me up. That's what essentially what you've distilled into devolution, isn't it? I mean, there's one there's one bit in devolution that I think stands for everything you've been talking about today. Um, and it's such an innocuous little line, but Mostar, the Yugoslavian, when we we're talking about the character. There's one part where she just turns round to all these entitled brats, for want of a better word, and amongst this digital palace that they've built, she just says, Do any of you have a paper map? And none of them do. And I think that that just sums up exactly yep. what you're saying. You know, 20 years ago, as you say, we may have had a paper map to solve some of this.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, my grandfather knew how to fix everything in his house. He only called a plumber or an electrician or any kind of specialist when it was outside his ability. But if there was something minor, he did it himself. That's what you do. Uh, Nowadays, how many people know how to fix a toilet? How many people know where their fuse box is? How many people, if your car won't start, how many people know to be able to lift the hood and actually know what's under there? Uh, Most of us don't anymore. Uh, but they used to, I mean, pardon my language, but for fuck's sake, your queen knows how to fix a car. <laughs> Even she, the most entitled person in the history of the UK, at one point needed to get a freaking job and learned how to be a mechanic in the army. So how is it she knows how to fix a Land Rover, but most of our generation doesn't? I think th- the boomers are in trouble, but their parents, their parents knew what had to be done. And this is what sort of frustrates me is that that we've built up enough of a comfortable society that we're able to focus on cosmetic issues and things like that without the the meat and potatoes issue, how to fix the roads, how to fix the bridges. Uh, I mean, poor Canada. My God, they had no vaccine manufacturing, none. Uh, And look how they're suffering. And my heart goes out to them. But You know, I I do a lot of interviews during the plague where people, uh, especially in the Europeans, would ask me sort of, what is your big surprise? And I'd say, look, I expect Americans to be selfish and stupid uh, during COVID. But what's your excuse? You have socialized medicine that we liberals all ooh and ah over in America. And yet, look how poorly you did. That's terrifying that you were supposedly did the right thing and people still died."
0: Yeah, yeah. I think my listeners are probably a little bit exhausted by my covid coverage because it's all I've talked about it's quite difficult to do a podcast with horror writers and not fixate on the very living apocalypse in our midst um, but I think yeah this this book is is a lovely way to go and read about humans in crisis that touches on all of the issues that have come to light in covid but without having to be mired perhaps in that same type of apocalypse It's a good way to read about it without having to dwell on our reality.
1: And, you know, I should I should just say for the record, I'm not a Luddite. I believe in technology. I think it's important. I mean, that's why I don't I don't believe in in sort of the the bullshit of sort of going back to nature and living a more rugged existence. Uh, When people did that, they lived to their 30s. So I believe in every single comfort and necessity that our first world safety net offers. I just believe that we should have a backup just in case the system fails. You know, something as simple like with a driverless car, I'm all for it. But you need a manual kill switch, a physical lever you can pull that's not electronic, that cuts all the power if, God forbid, the electronics go crazy. And I believe that should be the case in everything. And we used to have that. So I love technology. I'm all for it. But what's your plan B?
0: Yeah, I'm still not that Cool with driverless cars. But yeah, i take your point. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's next for you, Max? Have you got anything planned for the future? I know you take a while between books, but what are you working on? Yes. Well, it actually uh something happened
1: during the plague. During COVID, when I was doing the audiobook for Devolution, we suddenly had to we had to put the brakes on production because we couldn't get actors, including me, into the studio safely. So God bless Random House. You want to talk about adapting under crisis? They pivoted. And they mailed us all giant boxes of sound equipment. We look like domestic terrorists. And within these, within the sound equipment was a laptop. And you open it up, and instantly you are connected by a Zoom to a sound engineer who could then walk us all through how to set up a home recording studio, which we all did. So the audio book of devolution is all recorded by people in their home. I'm I'm under my steps doing my impression of Das Bo. And so what that taught me was that it was actually very cheap and very easy to do an audiobook. And so I went back to one of my previous projects, the Harlem Hellfighters. And if you if you don't know that one, that is a, a true story. In World War I, a unit of American, African-American soldiers were sent into combat uh, with the American government hoping they would fail because the American government did not want black people to be heroes on the battlefield and come home and inspire black Americans. So they did everything possible to sabotage them. And in spite of that, this unit came home as one of the most decorated outfits in the entire U.S. Army. And I wrote it as a graphic novel uh, several years ago. And I but my goal had always been to do a giant all star cast. Uh, like a big epic movie, like The Longest Day or A Bridge Too Far. And so I thought, now I know there's a way to do that, but as an audio drama. So I am right now working with Random House Audio to try and turn it into like a huge radio drama where we can get uh, the biggest stars out there to simply record their part from their house.
0: Oh, very cool. So that's like imminent then. That's happening during COVID if needs be, because there's no... We don't have to wait for studios to reopen. That's excellent. Well, we're just in the writing phase at this point. But, you know, let's see who
1: we get. It's the early stages. But I will say now we were able to circumvent the biggest stumbling block for making a movie, which was scheduling. You can't get the uh, the biggest black stars. And I say black, not African-American, because half of them are British people pretending to be Americans. Everybody thought Idris Elba was American. The guy from uh, Get Out, British. They can all do American accents. So we'll see. We'll see if we can get their schedules to line up, but it's a hell of a lot easier
0: to record for an hour in your closet. Well don't I know it? <laughs> I mean, all I've got to ask you now is that the two questions that I ask each guest at the end of this show, if you wouldn't mind, to put you on the spot. Um I ask each guest to recommend a book to my listeners and give the reason why. Does anything come to mind? Okay, yes. Uh, You know, we've talked
1: very heavily, right? We've talked about philosophy and technology and geopolitics. Uh But let's go light for a second. Still smart, still well written, but light. And so I would recommend any horror book by Guy N. Smith, because he's written, uh, what, a hundred books? And he writes about giant crabs, and he writes about the slime beast, and he Writes about a disease that turns us all into like Sasquatch creatures. And my God, the man just keeps going. So if I just want to relax with a good book, and I learned, and I picked up my first Guy N. Smith book in the 90s, working for the BBC in Manchester at the youth hostel there on the canals. And I picked up, I think it was Attack of the Crabs. And I'm hooked. So I think I, ha- I have all, all his books. So if you want to just a fun, smart, well done, scary read, anything by Guy N. Smith.
0: Well, that is a very different recommendation. Normally I get high-end literary, experimental, Booker a winner book recommended. So that is a breath of fresh air. I've only read Night of the Crabs back in my very junior horror reading days, but I may have to go back and reconsult some Guy and Smith. And the last question, Max, what truly scares you? Willful stupidity.
1: Not ignorance and not stupidity. But when somebody doesn't know something and doesn't want to know something, that absolutely terrifies me. Because just like in the UK, the United States of America is a democratic society where we, the common voters, are the boss. And if we choose not to educate ourselves about the issues, the big issues that affect us all, if we remain willfully ignorant, we then elect ignorant people. And we've seen this in your country and in mine. And as much as people like to slam Boris Johnson, he looks like Dr. Samuel Johnson next to Donald Trump. But that's not his fault. And that's not Trump's fault. That's our fault. They did not storm to power in military coups. We elected them. And that terrifies me when my fellow Americans don't know something and don't want to know something because it scares them or it makes their head hurt or there's something shiny that they would rather pay attention to that's what keeps me up at night
0: yeah me too me too i, I look at boris johnson every day a, a man that i refer to as a malevolent hay bale <laughs> i just think what has he got to do what just like trump like what what will be the thing the other day boris johnson said i take responsibility for the excess 100 plus 1000 deaths and then carried on being prime minister and I'm like, what does he have to do? What does Trump have to do? What what does Bolsonaro have to do for us to just say enough? Um yeah, and that's what keeps me up at night as well.
1: Yeah.
0: Well said. And I think, as you said, we can blame Steve Jobs for putting T V in people's pockets and not caring about this shit. But thankfully you had him eaten by a Bigfoot in the woods. So <laughs> So, all I can say, Max Brooks, is thank you for a great read that I needed in the middle of a a global pandemic, and thank you for talking scared. Thank you. Feeling nervous yet? (laughs) So, just as I was thinking that, you know, post-Covid, humanity may stand a chance, Max comes in with his existential baseball bat and breaks it over my head but thankfully he at least did it with charm and verve. First off I really enjoyed Devolution. You can soon hear a fuller review on my Patreon channel. That's the thing I'm going to start doing soon. Full breakdown reviews of each book I discuss on the show. But yeah suffice to say it's a brilliantly enjoyable book but much darker and far more violent than I expected. I'm a nerd for pseudo-folklore and pretend documents, and that's one of the two best parts of Devolution. All the cool little references, trying to pinpoint the line between fiction and reality. It's just cool. And what a scalpel-sharp literary analysis that is. Cool. But it is. The other great part of the novel is the satire. We talked about it a lot, and I won't rehash here, but, yeah, you can pick out your friends your workmates and yourself in these entitled idiots living in the woods with their techno self-righteousness. It's a joy to witness them being eaten. There was a train of thought throughout our conversation about technological dependence and entitlement and, for want of a better word, weakness. It's a thing I often think and struggle to articulate because to suggest that, that we modern liberals could sometimes, perhaps, learn from our unenlightened grandparents and great-grandparents. And yeah, I've got serious air quotes around the word unenlightened. To suggest that we could learn from them is, its frankly, social media suicide at times. And And who needs that drama? But Max's book is a great satirical take on... This very modern liberal enclave that we all live in and and from where we are trying our best to do a little bit of good. But it is an echo chamber and it's good to laugh at yourself sometimes and, and to know your own limitations. And Max does have a point about learning to fix your own car. Yeah, go into this book with a sense of humour about them, but also about yourself. And, and I think you'll see some things in them that make you kind of wince and also worry about, quite frankly, how you'd cope in a crisis. I'm screwed. What did you all think of Max's take on the movie of World War Z? I thought he was very philosophical and gracious about it. When I tweeted asking for opinions, a a good few people expressed quite how much they hate that film. I don't. I think it's a great first 20 minutes, followed by a fun blast around the world watching some undead gymnastics, and then it devolves, see what I did there, into this weird final third set in Wales of all places, with the scope, scale, and presumably the budget of a bad Doctor Who knockoff. Very strange. I actually disagree with Max's take on movies being either tiny or massive, Netflix is saving the middle East movie. Something like, you know, Fight Club or uh, The Sixth Sense or Unbreakable, those kind of things. They they found a home, or the the modern versions of them, they found a home on Netflix. And, you know, World War Z could have been done cheaply, and as it should be, as a found-footage mockumentary with talking heads and gritty footage and awkward graphics... It'd be brilliant and Netflix, Amazon, Shudder, give me money and I'll make it for you. Speaking of giving me money, yep, it's that time of the week again. The passing around of the Patreon begging bowl. (laughs) First of all, I've got thank yous to catch up on. Emily Cardwell, Stuart Sigston and Nina Sigston take a bow. You're the latest additions to the Talking Scared Patreon family. Thanks so much for your support. I... Hope the bonus stuff that's starting to come this very week will feel like fair reward. I've got extra content from Josh Malaman, Zakiya Dalila Harris and Max Brooks answering an assortment of odd questions. They'll be my first Dig Deeper episode in which I start by laying out the books that have truly scared me the most and kind of considering why. Consider it a portal into my broken mind or, or essentially free therapy for me. Oh, and the reviews I mentioned earlier. Yeah, each month I'll be releasing patron-only reviews of the books we've read and discussed. You can hear what I really think, the stuff I didn't dare tell the author. Full disclosure, I, I almost always like the books. But I do have things to say. Yeah, all that and much more. I'm I'm planning the first Ask Me Anything um, once I've got enough people to make me feel confident it won't just be me asking myself what I want for dinner yeah join in beyond all that you can join the conversation and talk scared on twitter at talk scared pod on instagram at talking scared pod or email me direct at talking scared at gmail.com always great to hear from you and reviews always help Little else to say, Um, the list of books discussed, as always, will be in the show notes along with anything else of interest. I'm back next week with V Castro talking Latinx horror and Texan legends. Until then, turn off tracking on your phone, take a break from your screen, learn how to build a fire, and if you do go into the woods, take something that's tastier than you are. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.